Welcome to Steel City Church. We are all about connecting people to a loving God by sharing life together as we love Jesus and love all. We hope with this message you will have a better understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross as we dig deeper into his word. Enjoy today's message. Our, uh, our scripture this morning is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll start in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you uh, for the way that you use it to transform us, uh, that you use it to grow us and to make us more like your son, Jesus. We'll give you all the glory for that. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk a little bit about theology. If you don't know what that is, it's the study of the nature of God and belief. Now there are different disciplines in theology, like uh, eschatology, ecclesiology, soteriology, and uh, c- cosmetology. <laughs> no, no that, that's not right. I'm pretty sure that one's made up. Now, theology tends to be more scholarly than your average church service. It can have varying degrees of importance to the layperson. Uh, What we're going to be looking into this morning, I believe, is vital uh, for us to understand, and that is the doctrine of sanctification. It's a big word. It's found in Scripture, and I'll define it for you. Some of you may already know what it is. Sanctification is the process of being made holy, or becoming more Christ-like. A couple of months ago in my earlier uh, crack at transformation, I took what was to me the clearest biblical passage on transformation at the beginning of Romans 12. This time I wanted to tackle it a little more philosophically, but no less applicably. So I thought about what transformation is from God's point of view and I ended up at sanctification. I have to say that this sermon was uh, somewhat more difficult for me to prepare. I'm a Bible teacher. I take a passage of scripture and try to teach it in its context and in our day, and I will be doing that with our passage this morning. But I am not a Bible scholar, and getting into theology is much more like trying to fit a, a puzzle together, or at least a more difficult puzzle. In my estimation, what you have to do is is build your case, uh, so to speak. 
as an aside, if this all, if this all sounds like a, more of a lecture than a sermon, uh, as I figure it might, I encourage you to stick with me. It won't stay that way. Sanctification cannot properly be understood without discussing another doctrine first. One not found explicitly in today's passage, but found implicitly. Let's look at verse 23, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself. Okay. We'll stop there, right before sanctify. We'll start with God, as we ought to. Why does Paul call him the God of peace here? Why not the God of love? The God of infinite power. Uh, the God who knows everything. Paul uses this term multiple times in his epistles when he's referring to God, but he does not use it exclusively. I had a youth group leader in my teens. Uh, every single time I ever heard him pray, he began with Father God. It struck me because I had never heard anyone begin a prayer that way before. I was used to, you know, Heavenly Father and O oh Lord and so on. But he always prayed, beginning, Father God. And it's a perfectly fine way to start a prayer. But as it was brought to mind this week, I realized that he was saying it by rote. That was how he referred to God in his prayers. He never varied. All that is to say that Paul was not referring to God by rote here. I believe he was referring to him this way as the God of peace with intent. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. This is after the fall. Uh, God is addressing the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, because of the fall, God is talking to the serpent. That's Satan here. He is putting enmity, uh, which is hatred, hostility, animosity, between the devil and his offspring, and Eve and her offspring, that is Jesus. Using the principle found in Galatians 3.16, you don't have to turn there, but it reads, it does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. With that biblical principle in mind, we see from the context here, uh, her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's a messianic prophecy. So this is talking about her offspring being Jesus. It's not, uh, you may read it and think, you know, her offspring like all men, you know, people who came down the line from Adam and Eve. Uh, but it's not that here. So when Jesus said things like, you are of your father the devil, he was showing this to be true. We all start on the side of enmity with God. Enmity is the opposite of peace. Enmity means we're enemies. 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 10, please. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies. If we can flip back uh, to uh, verses 1 and 2 of the same chapter, Romans 5, that says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God since we have been justified by faith in Christ. And that is our second doctrine, justification. Actually, it's the first doctrine. Justification is a legal term. It means that we are declared not guilty. It doesn't mean that we aren't guilty. When a judge reads the verdict, not guilty, he is not saying that the defendant didn't do it. He is saying they're not being charged with it. And that's an important distinction. Justification is not a comment on someone's character. All of us stand accused and are guilty. And that's bad news. As uh, if we can flip back to Romans chapter 3, this is well known. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then we keep going, and here's the good news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation means uh, an atonement. He took our place. So this is the gospel. God is the God of peace. We do not make peace with God. He makes peace with us. He justifies us. How does he do that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we are declared righteous. Christ's righteousness is impugned to us. We are saved by grace, through faith, and not by our own works of righteousness. You can, in your own time, read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 and read and see who comes away justified. In fact, Paul uh, opens 1 Thessalonians. He opens it writing, grace to you and peace. God's grace comes first. And then we have peace with God. So back, uh, back to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Where's my bookmark? There it is. The God of peace himself sanctify you completely. All of us who are righteous before God... That means who have put our faith in Jesus as our uh, substitution that he paid our penalty. All of us who are justified before God are being sanctified. 
We are not sanctified. We are being sanctified. It's a process. I can remember living at home as a teenager. Uh, I was, I had just turned 15 uh, when I uh, put my trust in Jesus. So living at home as a teenager, as a, as a new Christian, I can remember on multiple occasions, my brother pointing out some sin that I had done and saying, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. That was over half my life ago, <laughs> you know. And guess what? I still do and say and think things that would make him say, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. I am not holy, but I am being made holy. Now, there's a couple of things here. Uh, first, I would hope in actuality, my brother did see some sort of a change in me, and he was just kind of being a brother. I think that that was probably true. Uh, secondly, our behavior matters. It's a bit of a paradox. We are called in Scripture Christ's ambassadors as though Jesus were making his appeal through us. But we still sin, all of us. When we talk about the relationship of justification to sanctification, we are not moving on from the gospel. The gospel that saves is the same gospel that sanctifies. We are saved and we are being saved. We are justified, and that is saved from sin's penalty. We are being sanctified, which is being saved from sin's power. Now, it's one thing for unbelievers to not get this, but we dare not confuse it. Alistair Begg says, a person does not have to become righteous to be declared righteous. You couldn't do it for yourself, not with a million years' time. How many times have you heard of someone saying something to the effect of, uh, oh, I, I can't come to church, I can't come to God, I gotta clean myself up first? You know? Yeah, right, yeah, if I come into church, yeah. lightning will strike the building, that sort of stuff. That's putting the cart before the horse. No one is righteous, no, not one and all our best attempts are filthy rags. All the self-help books and life coaches in the world are not gonna get you there. It's not self-help, it's God's help. Even, even us as believers may sometimes think, and I know I, I have in the past, we may think, uh, you know, I can't do this for God, I can't get involved in this ministry, um, I'm not good enough, I still sin too much. The truth is, I, I wasn't good enough to do that ministry, and I'm still not good enough to do ministry, but if God calls me to do it, I should do it. Romans 8 begins that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it closes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Satan tries, tries to condemn us, tries to accuse us. It's a great trick of his. But if Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're completely Christ-like. But that you are more like him than you were when you began with Christ. Joss is getting big, isn't she? When she was born, she was five and a half pounds. My, uh, 
my parents came to the hospital, my dad picked her up and he laughed and he said, ah, she's a bag of sugar. <laughs> and she's come a long way from that. There has never been a week where I said, wow, she really sprouted up this week. Am I going to expect that next week I will be much more Christ-like than this week? No. Or worse, am I going to expect that next week you are going to be much more like Christ? Am I going to condemn someone that God has made peace with? I better not. I'm not saying that we shouldn't address sin in each other's lives. We should, even in extreme cases, to the point of admonition and rebuke. But we better not enjoy it. We better not think ourselves above the person. The Bible says, if any man stands, take heed lest he fall. That is to be used only as a tool to correct. The next point is that we do not sanctify ourselves. The God of peace sanctifies us. And we do not justify ourselves. The difference is that we are partners with God in our sanctification. It is the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. But we can only work out what the Spirit works in. As Paul said in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Again, that's not tomorrow. That's not next week. That's not next month. At the day of Jesus Christ. Well, it could be. Right? It's our death or his return. Until that time, as uh, this says in 1 Thessalonians, we are kept blameless. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That is an awesome promise. We can be fickle. We can be led by the highs and lows of our emotions. As the hymn writer said, uh, prone to wander. But God is faithful. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. Charles Spurgeon said, he is faithful. Faithful to his own promise, which is pledged to save the believer. Faithful to his son, whose reward it is that his people shall be presented to him faultless. Faithful to the work which he has commenced in us by our effectual calling. It is not their own faithfulness, but the Lord's own faithfulness on which the saints rely. So as we kind of head towards a close, I hope you have a clearer understanding of these matters. And I'm hoping that uh, God will give you even clearer understanding still. You may be thinking uh, of how you um, might apply this truth to your life. Maybe you would uh, rejoice in the work that God has done and is doing in you. And that, that is good. That's great. You may be thinking of how you might partner with God in your sanctification. Uh, and hopefully I can help give some insight into that. But first, let's change the framework a little bit. When this passage says, may the God of peace sanctify you, the you is plural. Now, is it plural just because 1 Thessalonians was written to a group of people? It's possible. But is it also possible that the sanctification being talked about here is a corporate sanctification? I believe it is. 
Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, guys, should I go back a few verses to the wives part? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. All right. No. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I am not the bride of Christ. You, singularly, are not the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And as we continue there, it says that he may sanctify her, not me, although I am included, I am a part. Not you, although you are included, you are a part. But the church, he is sanctifying us together. You have the Holy Spirit inside you, and so do I. Did you ever wonder why it says that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there with them? It's because God now... Uh, lives on earth most fully in the church. We often take our American value of independence. We think that it's uh, God and me against the world. That is not God's plan. We cannot isolate ourselves from each other. I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about in spirit. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. In our country, we have the Declaration of Independence. In the church, we need to declare our dependence on God and on each other. Bringing it back to sanctification, it's by the washing of water with the word. The reading and teaching and application of the Bible in our midst is the primary tool for our sanctification. Here and in our homes, we need to prioritize it. We need to seek our sanctification together. The Bible tells us we should confess our sins to one another. That is a scary prospect. I read a heartbreaking story this week about a pastor of a large church, 1,600 people. He admitted to his board that he was struggling with depression. They said he had a mental illness and got rid of him. Three people out of 1,600 stood with him and said, this is wrong. Three. There's a saying that says the church is not a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. That church didn't understand that. I believe that we at Steel City Church do. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all come up and say every nasty thing we've ever done or said or thought. I'm suggesting that we allow each other to bear our burdens. Do you have to tell everyone everything? No, but you get plugged in and you tell somebody about your struggles. My vow to you this morning is if you talk to me about something you, you're struggling with, I'm not gonna judge you for it. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect, against those God has justified? I do not want to be on that side of it, that's for sure. If the Bible says there's no condemnation for those in Christ, I don't want to be caught condemning someone who is in Christ. God has showed us such amazing grace. He saved us, and he made us part of his body. And he is faithfully working our sanctification, a sanctification that is a team sport. Let's think on these things as we head towards communion. Amen. Amen.